You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. Father, we thank you so much for your word, and we do believe it, um, but we struggle to believe it at times. And so I pray that you would help our unbelief, that you would grant us faith, um, that we would truly come today with an open posture to hear from you, King Jesus, trusting that you know better uh, how to run our lives than we do. I pray that the grace we have been talking about over the weeks prior, that this grace would just settle deeper into our hearts, and that it would conform us more in the image of your Son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. On Friday, I discovered that one of my heroes of the faith, Tim Keller, passed away. Uh, He was 72 years old, and in his time here on earth, he accomplished a lot for the kingdom of God. He and his wife planted a church. Uh, it was Presbyterian Church, um, Redeemer Presbyterian in New York City uh, back in 1989, one of the most secular cities at the time in the country, and they saw God just do an amazing thing there. They planted other churches through their church. Tim Keller authored over 30 books, uh, and he has just impacted literally millions of people, including me, through his teaching and ministry. And over the weekend, as I have reflected on Tim Keller's life, um, one of the verses that came to my mind was, was the verse the Apostle Paul shared where he said, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. I think that really sums up Tim Keller well. Um, this is a man who lived well, he suffered well, and he died well. So he's such a great example for us in his life and his death. And as I've thought and reflected on him, this weekend, the question that I've been asking myself is, is how was this man able to go the distance? How was he able to endure? How was he able to, in the, in the midst of, uh, you know, all of the pain and the suffering and the hardship and even the bad news that he received about his terminal cancer a couple of years ago, how did he continue to press forward and to finish his race? It's an important question. You know, I, I've, I've been thinking about... Um, you know, over the past, I guess, three years, I've had a lot of friends that have left the ministry. Um, some of them have been disqualified. Some of them have just given up. They, they just said that, you know, they're too discouraged. They don't want to continue forward in the ministry. And as I also think about not just pastors, but Christians themselves, I think this has become increasingly true in our country. You know, one of the saddest things is uh, for me to see someone who starts out so passionate about following Jesus. I mean, they're excited about Jesus. Maybe they go through the baptism waters, but then over time, right, that faith just begins to, to fizzle out. They begin to slowly but surely fall away from the church, to fall away from the mission of Christ, and ultimately away from this vibrant and flourishing life that Jesus has for them. Um, I was reading in the Gallup poll just yesterday, and, and there's a new stat that came out, I'm not sure if you saw it, that said church membership among Americans have now dropped below 50%. So for the first time in American history, if you are a member of a local church, you're in the minority. 
Like, you're weird. You're a rebel. You're an outcast. Like, you are one of the crazy ones. Uh, Barner Research recently came out with uh, some stats, and, and they said this, that now, currently in America, only 64% of people claim to be Christian. That may seem like a lot, but first I'll keep in mind that's not just necessarily they are Christians, they just claim to be Christians. And if 64% seems like a lot, keep in mind that in 1975, 90% of Americans claim to be Christians. So it's nearly a 30% drop in just the amount of people who just profess, just claim with their mouth to be Christians. And what's even more disturbing is what you'll discover is the younger the generation in America, the less Christians you're going to find. Uh, find. Generation Z, which is the generation between those born between 1999 and 2015, uh, of, of the teenagers in our world today, only 4%, or in America today, only 4% of them hold to a biblical worldview. Think about that. 4% of Gen Z, 4 in every 100, just have a biblical worldview, but just say that, yeah, I see the world through the lens of Scripture. And so needless to say, Christianity is not doing so well in our country, whether it be because of suffering or secularization, or social media, or just busyness, more and more people are turning away from Jesus and the church. And because the preacher in Hebrews knows this is a temptation for all of us, because he knows that none of us are beyond, uh, or knows that none of us are above, or it's beyond our ability to, to have our own faith fizzle out, he says in verse 36, we already read it, you need to persevere, so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what is promise. And what is promise? I'm about the promise of eternal life, a full life, abundant life with Christ. With that question in mind, or with that statement in mind, the question I have for us this morning is how do we persevere? How do we, like a Tim Keller, like so many others who before him, how can we live well, suffer well, and die well? How do we go the distance? How do we continue to grow? How do we continue to mature? How do we persevere so that in the end we experience this promise of full and abundant life with God? And in order to answer that question, I want you to look back with me, Actually, at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. And let me just tell you two things, uh, two warnings. First off, I changed my message last night, uh, literally sitting on my front porch. And so there's some of the message that's similar to what I was planning to preach, but a lot's going to be different. And so if you're trying to follow and you're, you're not able to follow in the version notes or on the slides, that's okay. And then secondly, I want you to know this. I plan to quote Tim Keller a lot today um, just because I want to honor his life. And so I literally was like, any point I was making, I was like, oh, I remember Tim Keller said something similar to that. Or I remember he said that. And so I'm going to share several quotes from Tim Keller today. But Hebrews 10, verse 19, just to set the context for you, what the preacher has just said, remember, Hebrews is not a letter, it's a sermon. And what he just said in his sermon is that Jesus is our great high priest. He is the one who entered into heaven, into the very presence of God on your behalf and my behalf. And if you remember from last week, he didn't enter through the blood of blood or through the blood of, of bulls and goats like those in the Old Testament, like the priest in the tabernacle back in the Old Testament. But he actually entered into the presence of God, the very presence of God through his own blood. Jesus didn't just make a sacrifice. He became a sacrifice. He shed his own blood for you and me so that we can be forgiven, so that we can be freed, so that we can be fulfilled in the very presence of God. The curtain has been torn in two from top to bottom so that God's presence can be unleashed into this world so that now if you trust in Jesus and his life, his death and resurrection, you can have access into God's presence anytime, anywhere. That's what he just said. And now in verse 19, if you look with me, he says, therefore. So this is a hinge 
in the book of Hebrews. We're in a turning point. It says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great, great high priest over the house of God, and here's the first thing he's going to tell us that we need to do, the first step we need to take if we are going to persevere. He says, because of all of that, because of God's grace, because you can now have access to God whenever you want, wherever you want, verse 22 let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance of faith it brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Do you see what the preacher is saying? He says, look, if you want to stand the test of time, if you don't want to flake out or fizzle out, like if you want to, to progress in the Christian life, if you want to grow, if you want to be like the Tim Kellers of the world, like if you want to endure, if you want to run the race and finish the race that God has uh, set out for you, if you want to receive the promise of eternal life, this is the first thing you have to do. Is he says, let us draw near to God. And he says, let us do it with a sincere heart. The word for sincere there can be translated as a pure heart or a undivided heart. What he's saying is, look guys, don't be flippant about the presence of God. Don't be ho-hum about the fact that you can enter into the presence of God. Don't be half in and half out. Go all in on God. Pursue God. Draw near to God. Don't take for granted the fact that you can right now at great cost to God through his son Jesus can have access into his very presence. Tim Keller, I remember once said, the only person who dares to wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. And he says, we have that same kind of access to God. God is the king of all kings. And because you have gone from being his enemy to being his beloved son or beloved daughter, you can go to him whenever you want with whatever request you want. Because of Jesus, we can enter into the presence of the King of the universe. And man, like, like to us, like, that, that just becomes old news. But to those in the Old Testament, like, this would have blown their mind. Remember, like, to those he's writing to in the church uh, here in Hebrews, like, these Hebrews, like, they, they are used to this, this formula, to this system, this structure where a priest has to go into the tabernacle, the copy of heaven, into the Holy of Holies on their behalf. They themselves could not enter into God's presence lest they be obliterated. But now that is over with because of Jesus. And so here's the question this morning. Are you taking this for granted? Are you taking the presence of God for granted in your life? Or are you drawing near to him? Are you pursuing him? Are you seeking to cultivate intimacy with this God who has made himself available to you? And if you're like, well, I don't know how to do that, Jared. I can't see God. How do I draw near to an invisible God? Well, the answer is through the spiritual disciplines. It is through things like reading the scripture, which is God's very word to you. You draw near to God through things like prayer and fasting, silence and, and solitude. These are time-tested practices that have been passed down throughout church history that even Jesus himself observed when he was on earth. There is no other way for you to draw near to God other than through these ways, through worship, like what we did just now. It's a great way that we get to right now come and draw near, not just to the band, not just to me, not just to one another, to draw near to the presence of God. Pay attention to things in your life that stir your affections towards God and do those things. 
for me, I, I love journaling. I also like doing weird stuff. Like I, I go to cemeteries. Some of you like that does not your thing. For me, as weird as that is, that in, a, in some way helps stir my heart towards God as I remember the fact that I am finite, that my life is short, that I am going to spend somewhere for an eternity. And I want to spend that eternity with my father, with God. I don't know what it may be for you, but you have got to find things, guys, in your life that stir your heart towards God. And you have to get rid of the stuff that robs you of your affections for God. You know, my guess is everybody in this room and listen online would say that they want to go to heaven when they die. But do you realize, like, do you know what makes heaven heaven? God. Like, without God, there is no heaven. David says, in his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is why David would go on to say, when I don't feel God's presence, he says, my, my, my soul, he says, it pants for God. I'm like a deer that, that, that pants for God and longs for God. Can you say the same thing? Can you say that when you don't feel God's presence, that, that your soul begins to search for him like this dehydrated deer searching for water? You know, I once heard Keller say that religious people find God useful, but Christians find God beautiful. I, I would agree with that. Religious people, they like to go to God to get something from God. Christians like to go to God to get God. I just want to ask you today, like, do you know God this way? Do you know God in this way? Is it true of you? Has your eyes been opened to see God as beautiful? Do you believe that in his presence is fullness of joy and in his right hand are, are pleasures forevermore? And therefore, as a result, are you, because of what Christ has accomplished, drawing near to God? The preacher says this is paramount to your perseverance. If you do not get this down, you will not stand the test of time. It doesn't matter how good the music is. It doesn't matter how good the preaching is. It doesn't matter how good your missional community is. It does not matter what we throw at you. No program can keep you like the presence of God can keep you. So draw near yourself to Him. Secondly, he says, if you want to persevere, he doesn't just say, let us draw near to God. But then in verse 23... He says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Years ago, I read a book uh, entitled Unbroken. It's about the true story of Louis Zamperini, who was a, a U.S. Olympian who fought in World War II. His plane went down in the Pacific Ocean. And he was stranded there in shark-infested waters for 47 days. It's a totally true story. Go read it on your own later. But after 47 days of being in this ocean, eventually this boat comes up and he's like, finally, I'm rescued, I'm saved. But it was actually a, a Japanese boat. And so they take him in. He becomes a prisoner of war and for two years. He's starved, he's beaten, and he's tortured. Many other people died who were with him, but he survived. And in this book, he talks about the reason he was able to survive is because of hope. He said, I remember, he said, every day I would think to myself, there's coming a day, someone's going to rescue me, and I'm going to get to have my mom's cooking again. Like, that was literally the image he had in his mind. Like, I, I would just imagine there's coming a day where I'm going to sit around the table with my mom, and I'm going to get to eat her cooking again. Like, so he had this hope, and the hope is what sustained him. It kept him from giving up, even in the midst of difficult times. And listen, guys, if that's what an unstable hope, like wishful thinking, I'm going to get mom's cooking, like, if that's what that can do for you, imagine what a hope as durable as the resurrection of Jesus Christ can do for you. Tim Keller was diagnosed with, with terminal cancer in 2020. Talking about a year, right? COVID breaks out. He's diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. 
And uh, a few months after his diagnosis in an interview with the New York Times, here's what he said. And by the way, I didn't get a chance to send these quotes. Like I said, I literally changed this last night, so I apologize. These aren't going to be on the screen or in your version notes, so just try to listen the best you can. He says, if the resurrection of Jesus Christ really happened, then ultimately God is going to put everything to right. Suffering is going to go away. Evil is going to go away. Aging is going to go away. Cancer is going to go away. Death is going to go away. If the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen, all bets are off. But if it did happen, and it did, then there's all the hope in the world, for even death itself can only make a Christian's life infinitely better. If you want to go the distance, if you want to persevere even in the midst of pain, you need to hold on to the hope we have in Christ. And this is ultimately what we see happening with this church in Hebrews. If you look with me in verse 32 through verse 34, the preacher says to them, Remember those early days after you'd received the light, after you'd received the gospel, when you endured, it's a military term, how you endured with great conflict, that's the Greek word athlesis, which is where we get our, our English word athlete. When you endure this great conflict, right, like a soldier, like an athlete, full of suffering. By the way, he's talking about uh, the suffering they experienced under the Roman Emperor Claudius back in 49 AD. He says, remember how much you suffered? Verse 33, sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood by the side with those who were so treated. You suffered along. This, this verse right here was enough to convict me this week, all week long. Verse 34, you suffered along with those in prison, and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. How can you possibly do that? People are taking your stuff and it brings you joy. People are robbing you of stuff and that makes you happy. How is that possible? Because, verse 34, you knew that you yourselves had a better and lasting possession. In other words, because you had hope. This is not all that there is. No matter how dark it gets, my brightest days are ahead of me. Because the truth is, the Christian life is not easy. There is sacrifice, there is hardship, there is persecution. If you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to have to say no to things the world is saying yes to. You just will. If you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to have to say yes to things that the world says no to. There is a cost of following Jesus, not to mention we experience the same trials and tribulations as everybody else around us in a fallen world. Following Jesus does not insulate you from troubles. Jesus says, in this life, you will have many troubles. And because that is true, listen, if you want to finish the race, if you want to stand the test of time, when suffering comes, not if it comes, when suffering comes, it is vital that you take your eyes off of yourself and you take your eyes off of your circumstances and you set your eyes on Jesus. The one whom the preacher has already told us in Hebrews 6.19 is our hope like an anchor for our soul, firm and secure. There is no greater hope outside of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so let us draw near to the presence of God if we want to persevere. Let us hold on to hope if we're going to persevere. And then because it's hard to hold on to hope, look what he says in verse 24. And let us consider, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the day more as you see the day approaching. I know 
that in a highly individualized, overly busy culture like the one we're living in, there is a hundred reasons and excuses not to get involved in the local church. But you need to know, according to the Bible, not according to Jared, according to the Bible, as imperfect as the church is, you will not stand the test of time without her. You won't. No matter how tough you are, no matter how smart you are, no matter how cool or educated or, or, or woke or wealthy you are, you will not experience intimacy with Christ apart from the body of Christ. That, that's, that's illogical. Here is Tim Keller again. He says, the glory of God, or the presence of God, is available to you in the church in a way that it's not available to you anywhere else. Where does he get that from? Well, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 through 5. The presence of God is available to you in the church in a way that it's not available to you anywhere else. And then he goes on to say this, there is no more important means of discipleship than deep involvement. Deep involvement in the life of the local church. You don't have to answer this out loud, but let me just ask you this morning. Like, do you believe that? Like, do you believe what he just says? That there is no more important means of discipleship than deep involvement in the life of the local church. Think about that. Because from my experience, I have, uh, from, from what I see, from my viewpoint, fewer and fewer people believe that. More and more people than ever before believe that the church is optional. And according to the scripture, guys, it's just not you need to be deeply involved. It doesn't have to be this church, but you need to find a church, and it's going to be imperfect. The pastors will be imperfect. The people will be imperfect. The only perfect person in the whole community is Jesus Christ. Find you a church that believes that, that will own, yeah, we're jacked up. Yeah, we're screwed up, but we're going to keep standing in the need of Jesus Christ together. Find you a church like that and get plugged in. You know, when we started um, uh, th- this church, uh, before we actually launched a public service, I was just talking to Ryan and Libby about this. Before we started publicly in 2012 and kind of uh, st- opened our doors to everybody, we said, look, before we kind of try to, you know, try to build this audience around a stage, let's try to build a, a family around a table. Like, let's come together around a meal. Let's dive into scriptures. Let's look and let's see what does it mean to follow Jesus. Like, let's, let's practice the way of Jesus together in, right here in our community. And the reason we wanted to start that way, not just with a big gathering like this, but with one missional community, is because we believe the Bible. We believe that if we're going to stand the test of time, we have to move beyond Sunday morning surface-level relationships. We have to get in deep community, and we have to, in the words of the writer here in Hebrews, encourage one another daily. We've got to stop showing up being like, I hope someone encourages me today. I hope someone has a blessing for me today. I hope someone has a word. I hope someone serves me today. We have to show up with this posture of I am here to be the change I want to see. I'm here to encourage others, not to, to want others to always encourage me. If we all take that posture of I better be encouraged, somebody better encourage, then no one will encourage anybody. We have to show up with this mindset of, man, this life is hard. We have a real enemy, the world, the flesh, the devil coming at us, and we need to give one another courage to press forward in the faith, to continue on the mission God has given us, to make disciples who make disciples so that we can see God's kingdom come and his will being done here as it is in heaven. And I get it, guys. Like, like people are messy. Relationships are hard. But as my mentor, Richard Plass, reminds me often, though in relationships we are hurt, it is only in relationships that we are healed. And so community, I'm telling you guys, 
Read the Bible, not through your American lens, but read the Bible as it is, and you will see community is non-optional in your discipleship to Jesus. And you're like, well, I'm not buying it. I just think you're saying that because you're a pastor and, and you just want to build a church or you just want to get people here. I, I, I think that's just your American lens that you think that, that we actually need to do this stuff. I think there's a lot of options. I think there's a lot of ways that we can go about following Jesus. Well, let's just see how the preacher responds to that. Verse 26 in Hebrews. If we deliberately keep on sinning, Keep in mind, this is just a sermon he's preaching. This is not a new thought for him. He's building off of the previous thoughts he just had. If we keep on sinning, if we keep on neglecting our relationship with God rather than drawing near to him, if we're flipping about the spiritual disciplines, if we keep on trying to, to anchor our hope in our kids or our careers or our boyfriend or our girlfriend or money rather than in Jesus, if we keep on Viewing community as optional. If we neglect coming together and, and, and having deep community and encouraging one another. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth. So you've heard the word of God. You know what he calls you to do. You say, I'm not going to do it. Then here's the result. There are no sacrifice for sins that are left for you. Verse 27, but only a fearful expectation of the judgment of the raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. How are we doing? If your disobedience does not bother you, if you know what the right thing is to do and you respond with, well, I'll pray about it, rather than actually being obedient to what he's told you to do. If you continue down that path flippantly as if it's no big deal, as if God is perfectly okay with you picking and choosing what parts of the scripture you want to obey, then what he is saying here is that you have no assurance of your salvation. He's not saying you lost your salvation. He's just saying there's a, there's a chance you never really had it. Never really had it. Now, now listen, I want to be very clear. He's not saying here that the Christian should be perfect. He's not saying that true Christians never sin. He's talking about people who are deliberately sinning, intentionally sinning. I know it's right, or I know what's wrong, and I don't care. I'm going to keep doing what I want to do, and I'll move at my time rather than God's time. Like, he's talking about those kind of people. He's not saying here that, that, that you can out-sin God's grace. Even if you were a hundred times worse than you are right now, listen to me very carefully. Even if you were a hundred times worse than you are right now, your sin would still be no match for the grace of God. So he's not saying like, 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 like God's grace is going to run out. He's not saying that, that, that God only has so much grace in his tank and somehow your sin will exhaust all of that grace. He's not talking about that. He, he's saying there's going to be no sacrifice for sins, not for those who lost their salvation, but for those who thought they had it but never had it, for those who, who, who rather than receiving the grace of God poured out for them through Jesus Christ, rejected the grace of God. And that's exactly what he goes on to say. If you just follow his, law, his, his, his reasoning, in verse 28 he says this. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy. Go read about that, by the way, in Deuteronomy 17. If you like broke the Sabbath, for example, like you picked up sticks on the Sabbath, they would stone you to death. Aren't you glad you're not living in the Old Covenant? 
anyone, verse 28, anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. So two or three people is like, I saw him picking up sticks. They're like, get him, right? Verse 29, how much more severely do you think someone needs to be deserved or punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of a covenant that sanctified them and has, listen to this line, insulted the Spirit of grace. Insulted the Spirit of grace. He says, man, you think it went bad for those who rejected God's law. How much worse should it go for those who reject God's Son? How much worse for those who reject the very grace of God that he wants to extend to you at great cost to himself at the cross or through the cost of his own son, the one who alone can bring the healing and salvation that you so desperately need for your soul. This past week, I learned about a man named Edward Jenner. I might have a picture of him, maybe. Anybody know who Edward Jenner is? Anybody? Uh, absolutely. The girl with the PhD in microbiology. Um, Edward Jenner uh, was a physician in the early 1800s. And he is the one who's responsible for curing smallpox. Uh, he came up with a vaccine for smallpox. He's actually the very first one that I know of that actually came up with vaccines. Um, and the way it happened was pretty crazy. Like he figured out somehow that if you infect somebody, if you inject somebody with cowpox, which is a lesser form of smallpox, it would make them sick. It would protect them from dying from smallpox, which millions of people were dying from during this time. And so he comes up with this. He actually injected his gardener's eight-year-old son. That's the first one he tried it on. Like, I don't know if he lost a bet or what happened, but like the, the gardener, but like, he's like, yeah, here's my son. You can try it on him. Like, put the cow disease in him. And he did it, and it worked. And then he just kept like testing more people, and it worked. And they found out very quickly, like, man, this guy has come across gold. Like, this actually works. This saves lives. And yet, you had this anti-vaccine kind of community, society, that began, and I think I maybe have a comic. Uh, did, I, did I send that to you? Yeah. Here it is. They begin to say, like, this is crazy. This guy wants to inject you with this cow disease. Like, it's going to make you worse. And you, you probably can't see it. But but these people are being injected with the, the vaccine. And it shows, like, they have, like, cows. Because they're, they're mutating into cows as a result. So there's this whole campaign against, like, do not take this vaccine. Like, it will kill you. Which we now know, all these years later, like, smallpox has been eradicated from the world thanks to this vaccine. And as I thought about this, I thought, like, man, in the same way... This is what the preacher is saying here. He's saying, like, like, this is what happens. He's like, just as there were some people who rejected this vaccine and would eventually die of smallpox, who would experience a, a death as a result of rejecting this thing that could heal them, in the same way, he's like, look, this is what happens when you reject Jesus. When you reject Christ, you reject healing. You reject salvation. You reject eternity with God. And therefore, he goes on in verse 30, and he says, look, for we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Despite what you have been told, please hear me. Despite what you have been told, God will not just look over your sins. He cannot just look over your sins. He's a good God. He's a holy God. Uh, you may not think sin's a very big deal to you. Your sin is a very big deal to God. So big that it cost him the, the death of his own son, Jesus, in order to help deal with your sin and make you right with him. 
And if you're like, okay, well, well, why does God have to do this? If God is love, why does he have to punish sin? Well, because sin leads to death. Sin vandalizes our soul. Sin breaks our world. And listen to me, guys. Sin is not just out there. Sin is in here. And so the only way God can deal with sin is either to get rid of the sinner or to send his son Jesus to come and die in their place. To come and become sin so that you can now become the righteous of God. And listen, you get to choose. Which one do I want? Do I want to look to the cross and trust that Jesus went there and he died in my place? Or do I want to reject that, basically live however I want? And if that's the case, listen, one day you will suffer for all eternity the way Christ suffered on the cross. You will absorb the full wrath of God because of your rejection of the one thing that could have healed you or could have saved you. And if you're like, well, I... I just believe in Jesus. Jesus is a God of love. I don't really believe in like this whole thing of right. I think Jesus changed all of that. Well, let me just read a few verses to you from Jesus, okay? This is Jesus talking. Matthew thirteen forty nine through 50. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 18. If your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away, for it's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to, have, uh, than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away, it's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. It's just his way of saying what the preacher saying, don't continue to deliver sin. Take your sin seriously. Matthew 25, 41-46, last one I'll read. Then he will say to those on his left, who's, they, who's, who's he? God. Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. There's more I could read, but here's just my point. If you decide to follow Jesus, it will cost you. But if you choose not to follow Jesus, it will cost you so much more. So much more. And because the preacher knows this is true, here's what he says, and we'll end here, verse 35. He says, do not throw away your confidence. Confidence in what? Confidence in Jesus, who has dealt with your sin so that you can enter into the presence of God. Do not throw away your confidence in Christ. It will be richly rewarded. Verse 36, you need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. And then in verse 37, he's just going to quote the prophet Isaiah and the prophet Habakkuk from a time whenever Israel was, uh, was turning from God. They were suffering because of their own sin. Enemies were taking them over. They're like, God, where are you? And he quotes these prophets and he says in verse 37, for in just a little while, he who is coming will come again and will not delay. Verse 38, but my righteous one will live by faith. That is the definition of a Christian. A Christian is not someone who put their faith in Jesus in church camp. They live by faith today. But my righteous one will live by faith. And I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. Verse 39, but we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. If you notice... There are only two gears in the Christian life, as I see it. There's forward and there's backward. There is no neutral. There are those, he says here, who shrink 
back in fear and are destroyed. And there are those who press forward in faith and are saved. And therefore, with that in mind, as we come to a close this morning, my invitation is simply this, and God's invitation to you is simply this. Step forward in faith. Whatever that step is. Dallas Ward was once asked, how does someone become a saint? And here was Dallas Ward's response, by just taking the next right step. Wherever you are in the journey, as scary as the step is, as hard as the step is, as uncomfortable as the step is, take the next right step. Trust Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus. Take the next right step. Do the next thing he's calling you to do. And listen, guys, this is going to look different for each of you. I don't know what the Spirit's calling you to do today. For some of you, he's calling you to begin to read the Bible. He's calling you to pray. He's calling you to to start fasting. Maybe he's calling you to spend time in silence and solitude, to draw near to him through a spiritual discipline. For others, maybe you're hit or miss on, on Sundays. And, and, and honestly, like this is just one of those things you're like, I don't think I need it. And maybe for you, like the Spirit is saying, like, man, prioritize this in your life. Or maybe you come regularly on Sundays, but you're not involved in the missional community. Maybe right now the Spirit's telling you, like, get active in community. Get involved. For me, this past week, like, I'll tell you, like, guys, I, if you think, like, I perfectly follow Jesus, you just don't know me very well. And so, like, I'm, I'm reading this passage this week, and I'm like, Lord, like, is there somewhere that I'm not stepping out of faith? Is there somewhere I'm shrinking back in fear? And the Lord brought something to mind where there were two people who have hurt me, who have sinned against me, and though I've not, like, texted them bad stuff or blasted them on Facebook, I knew in my heart that I was holding a grudge against these people. And I wasn't being mean to them. I just wasn't talking to them either. I was just pulling back. Just pulling back. Just like, whatever. I'm done with them. Like, whatever. If that's the way they are, I'm, I don't need them in my life. They didn't know that, but I knew it, and the Lord knew it. And so this week, I, I just, man, felt the Holy Spirit say, your next step, Jared, is to reach out to them with forgiveness and love and mercy and compassion and actually to begin to pray for their well-being. That was my next step this week of faith. I don't know what it may be. Some of you may be today, like, you need to give your life to Jesus. Your next step is salvation. Your next step is to surrender, not just to your afterlife, but this life to Christ. You know, you're going to put your faith in someone or something, and the call for some of you today is to put your faith in Jesus. To trust He is who He says He is, and He's done everything that He says He has come to do. And if you're here and you're like, man, I just don't have a lot of faith. My faith is weak. My faith is we, uh, feeble. I don't know if I have the faith to continue forward. Well, let me just share one final encouragement from Tim Keller. And, and as I do that, the band can go ahead and come on up. Here's what Tim Keller says. And by the way, you should listen to dying people because they've counted the cost. They're looking back at their life and they're evaluating everything. It's amazing to me. I, I was just thinking about this. Um, when I was 22 years old, I, I remember going to the hospital and sitting with a man who was dying. was by myself. His kids weren't able to be there. His wife wasn't able to be there. She was an older woman, wasn't there yet. And I mean, it was, it was a violent experience. I don't know any other way to explain it. I mean, he was not at all ready to enter into eternity. 
I was reading about Tim Keller yesterday and his son. He just talks about how Tim died. It's like, it's, I promise you, it's the way we all want to die. It's like, man, I'm so ready to meet my father. I'm so ready to see Jesus. Just went peacefully. Here I come. Let's do it. That's the way we want to die. And here's what he says. If you have weak weak faith, you're struggling, you're kind of floundering in your faith, he says this. If you're falling off of a cliff, a strong faith and a weak branch is fatally inferior to a weak faith and a strong branch. Let's read that again. If you're, if you're falling off a cliff, a strong faith and a weak branch is fatally inferior to a weak faith and a strong branch. And therefore, he says this, salvation is not based on the strength of your faith, but on the object of your faith. Salvation is not based on the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith. With that, man, my, my prayer is that for every one of us in this room today, that Christ would be the object of our faith. And that we would continue to stumble forward towards him together, knowing that his grace is sufficient and that his promises are sure. Let's stand together. I want to pray for us. We'll sing a couple more songs, take communion, and then we'll be dismissed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for giving us your word. Even when it's not always easy to hear, we know that it's here not to harden our hearts, but to soften our hearts. So that we ultimately can receive more of your grace, more of your love, more of your mercy, more of the life that you have for us. I pray there will be nobody here today who will take a step out of this room without first taking a step in their heart towards you, Jesus. And towards whatever the next right thing is for them and their family. If there is someone here today that does not know you personally or online, I pray that right now, Holy Spirit, quicken their heart, open their eyes to see you as beautiful. And I pray that they would in faith go towards you and surrender it all. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.